Welcome to the Cultivariable Podcast. This is episode number eight. I'm Bill Whitson, uh, owner of Cultivariable and your host. Today I'm talking with Chris Homanix. Chris is a plant preservationist, breeder, and farmer uh, in the Willamette Valley of Oregon. He, uh, he's known for his work with uh, perennial brassicas and also with, uh, with uh, fruit and nut trees. Um, we have a pretty wide-ranging conversation, uh, and I learned a lot about, uh, in particular, chestnuts and, uh, and pears. Um, this one has been sitting in the can for a while. We did this interview back in the summer, so sorry for the long wait, and uh, sorry in particular to Chris uh, for, uh, for keeping this on the shelf for so long. But uh, without further ado, Chris Omanix. My name is Chris Omanix, and... Uh... I wear a lot of hats day to day, but um, I'm a farmer and plant breeder and seed and plant preservationist uh, outside of um, Salem, Oregon, and uh, I think that's a good good starting point. That sounds like a very, very brief summary (laughs) of uh, all the pies that you have your fingers in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a lot of pie pie filling on my fingers, that's for sure. (laughs) Let's start with farming, and uh, we can uh, we can move down the list. What's your farming operation look like, and where do you grow? What do you grow, and uh, how's that going? Uh, so cur- currently, I'm doing a lot of farm mechanics, um, but uh, it is where I work is the Cleaner Cleaner Farm, which is an apple orchard. Um, we have something like 120, 140 varieties, plus several hundred more uh, that we're putting in. Um, and so that's my current farming endeavor. Um, I've done a lot of different farm enterprises, was raising chickens and breeding chickens for a number of years. But, uh, last, last season, uh, mink wiped out my, my four years worth of breeding work. Um, it was mink, a big bummer. A mink, yeah. Ugh. Um, it's, it's actually a marmot, but Western marmot, I think it is. But, um, yeah, they, they get, uh anxious when there's movement of creatures their size so they just kill and uh it it's it's pretty brutal holy crap that sucks yeah yeah and they, they range they range over a really large area um so uh i was able to catch it but uh um some people came to the nursery um the day i caught it and uh it like it's from the weasel family and uh um, it managed to somehow get out of the trap. And I've looked at that trap a ton of times to try to figure out how it got out of the trap, but it got out of the trap. <laughs> and, uh, but it never came back because they, they have a strong association for, um, danger. So they'll, they'll avoid any situations that they feel that jeopardizes them. So that was the end of chickens. That, that was the end of chickens for, for this, this time. But, uh, I would like to get back into chickens. I was um, working with cream uh, leg bars, which were bred in England um, as a early version of a battery hen, so a hen that, that would be okay being caged. And uh, that's not, I don't raise chickens like that, but they are very thrifty, very intelligent. Um, they rear their own young. Um, they have a high rate of egg lay. Um, and they're, they don't have too much of a genome bottleneck. 
So I thought that, that would be good to use um, to even increase the, the genetic diversity more by crossing to um, their close to their parents. So I was using um, Americana, different Americana breeds, and um, different Leghorn breeds. And I was crossing them. And then Doug also raises Malagasy, Madagascar, and Naked Necks. So I was using that across crosses. And I was using farm birds that people were giving me. So ones that would uh, fly and escape out of a small hole at the top of their coop or things like that. So really intelligent birds. So I was breeding birds that could escape, escape predators. But nonetheless, if you have them in a place where they can't escape the predators, they're not going to make it. Gotcha. So um, uh, over the years, I've also worked with and uh, grown all sorts of different types of plants, and I've been interested in plants since I was a really little boy. And uh, I did do some seed saving as a, as a young child and um, got back into seed saving um, in my mid-20s, and I've been engaged in that, that sort of work since then. Cool. You breed a lot of plants. You uh, you collect a lot of plants, I know, and I think I'm probably only just familiar with uh, with the very surface of that. I think what you're probably best known for is uh, your work with perennial brassicas. Would you say that's right? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think I think so. Um, so one one of the challenges one of the challenges of breeding plants is that uh, I don't own my own land, and uh, and if if you don't if you don't have uh, land security and if you don't have financial security, um, it is very difficult to keep plants alive. Um, so over the years, I've acquired lots of stuff and lost lots of stuff too. But, you know, I've kept a lot of stuff going, and I, I guess it's kind of the nature of, of uh, the natural world, you know. Um, and uh, I'm just an echo of it. But, um, yeah, I, I've been interested in brassicas, I, guess, I think, just as a, as a vegetable growing up. Um, and so that was one of the first things that, that I began working with were different types of brassicas. Um, and somewhere down the line, I think it was probably our friend Graham that uh, first got me. No, it was Frank Van Kiersbroek, um in Belgium that first got me into perennial brassicas, the, the eternal coal, um, the eternal cabbage from Germany, and uh, I, 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 botched, I botched this up, but the Da Benton from, mm-hmm. from France and other places, and uh, purple tree collards from England, and, and now the United States um, Bay Area. So I was like, gee, that'd be, that'd be nice to have uh, these clones and, per, you know, perpetually grow kale. And uh, I think the first time, actually, I think the first time I ever saw it was when I lived on Maui, and I was living on Maui in 2003, and there's this garden called the Garden of Eden, and it has all these rare tropical plants. And there was this uh, woody liana that was growing up in the trees, and it was actually a purple tree collard that had been there like, I don't know, a couple decades. And uh, I was like, man, that's fantastic. And uh, I didn't quite know what it was or anything until, I think, until Frank Van Kiersbroek 
And so you've, uh, over the years, acquired a bunch of these and you've worked on them. I've seen some pictures online of uh, a good number of uh, kale plants that you've had going recently for evaluation. Is that, uh, is that project still underway? Yeah. So uh, in terms of the crossing of the perennial kale, um, that, at least on my end, started in... 2012, and it continues today. Our again, our, our friend Graham had success in crossing uh, Dobenton purple tree collards and uh, Brussels sprouts cabbage, uh, a something very similar to Baltic kale, which is one of the parents of red boar, um, and uh, other other brassicas, other brassicolaraceae, and um, he didn't have very much space in his allotment garden, so he sent me seeds. In 2012, I grew out, I'd say, about 300 individuals, and uh, I was working at a nursery at that time, and so they gave me about a half an acre to plant stuff. So um, as one of my projects that year, I grew out that ca- the kale, and uh, that winter, spring, I moved to an orchard and moved the best plants over and let them cross. And from those, um, I've continued to select out all sorts of different lines and grow out um, larger larger groups of, of seedlings. So I've, I've usually germinated around um, 3,000 plants and selected down to about 800 and put those in the field and then selected several more times, selected during the summer's drought and selected during, well, after winter's, the worst of winter, and uh, then selected out the ones that flowered the most. And so it's kind of a dance. I'm I'm kind of trying to um, lessen the the proclivity towards flowering, but allow them to flower enough so that they still cross. Um, I figure that eventually I can... I can get to a place where I can uh, select out some varieties which are really seldom flowers. But if I do that early on, I can't advance a lot of the traits I want to advance. So, um, like drought hardiness, which I'm already there with, but um, cold hardiness, I'd like to go into colder zones. So they survive to about zone six, but it would be really great if they, they go down into, say, five. Five would even be a um, quite a feat, but um, and aphid resistance. Aphid, aphid resistance is actually one of the one of the big issues with with the perennial kale. Um, it might be because it's low in bitters. Um, uh, I don't know. It's something. It's something I'm still exploring. But I've also been interested in uh, interspecific brassica crosses, and um, there is a there's a species that's related to brassicolaria actually a, a synthetic species between uh, brass coloracea and um, an unknown nine, N, N9 species. Um, it could be a diplotaxis. It could be a rucrastrum. Um, I'm not sure. Nobody's sure what it is. I think it's probably diplotaxis um, catholica or diplotaxis eurycoides, but I'm not really sure. Um, but I, I'd love to cro- take Br- Brassica blerica 
and uh, Brassicolorasia, and what uh, a species that is compatible cross the Brassicolorasia and that species and create a new synthetic species and cross that to Blerica, because a Blerica, though it's tiny little plant, um, it's very very perennial. Um, it suckers from the base, and it's it, it's an interesting interesting plant. But I haven't gone down that route because um, I feel that uh, it would probably likely um, kick up a lot of uh, deleterious traits. Let's take a step back for a second and try to catch anybody up who's not who's not really up to speed on perennial brassicas at the moment. So so normal. Let's 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 okay. start with the kale. So normally kale is a is a biennial or in a sufficiently long climate, effectively an annual. Uh, in either case, it's a plant that once it flowers and sets seed, it, it dies. And so right. you're working largely with, with perennial brassicas that will live on and on. Why would somebody want a perennial kale? And what, what are the advantages and disadvantages to that? Somebody might not want a perennial kale. And uh, just to take a step back, actually kind of tw- twist that around a little bit mm-hmm. and, and explain why we got to the place where perennial kales are so rare. Uh, most of the perennial kale diversity has actually been lost since the, the Victorian age, late 1800s. Um, and there's been such a push to um, bring Brassica oleracea into a biennial, fully biennial nature due to market garden farming. Uh, people people have selected the things that most readily go to seed so they can get a seed crop to readily reproduce a future year. Um, but some of the advantages of actually having perennial kales um, and is is one is one you can actually skip the step of having to seed out your plants. You can actually instead take cuttings and you can maintain certain forms. That, that are pretty interesting. And then secondly, um, it turns out that the, the perennial kale is actually a very distinctive, based on a very distinctive subspecies called the bush kales, which is Brascolaracea ramosa. And um, I believe it has, it, it develops lignans differently than other Brascolaracea. And I believe that it probably has superior resistance to a number of fungal diseases, including blackleg, which is something that is uh, beginning to spread again. Um, we're the, um, in the Willamette Valley here, where I live, um, we're the world's producer of uh, many seed crops, and one of them is uh, Brascolaracea seed crops. And so blackleg is going to be a really big problem. In fact, um, due to... Uh, Oregon Department of Agricultural Rules, I needed to test my seed to make sure it was negative in Black Lake, actually to be able to sell it. Um, so using this Brassica Alaracea Ramosa descended material may be useful actually to integrate into all sorts of other species to um, confer Black Lake resistance and, and other resistances. Um, it's also really cool um, in terms of creating a kind of a more permanent um, fixture in the garden, it's something that if you, you tend to it and mound it, um, like they talk about in some of the old texts, it will um, re-root, the stems will re-root, and it will sprout up everywhere. 
and uh, you have this perennial plant spreading around your garden. So it's more of a plant, really, that that someone would grow in small numbers. Probably, we're not going to see people clamoring to grow acres of uh, of perennial kale, or at least not at this stage. Yeah, and you know, at one time people did collect perennial forms of um, uh, a thousand uh, called thousand-headed cabbage. Um, there are these forage types of brassicas, and I, I think that that's another place in which. Um, uh, it actually excels. It excels in the animal forage crop, even though um, since the beginning I've selected it for fine flavor. And mm-hmm. it already had really great flavor. So it's just been like adding on to something that's already been good, which is, you know, a lot easier than, than most things. Usually we, we start out, we start out, um, it's not so great, you know, and we have to kind of backpedal back to something that is palatable, whether it's potatoes or whatever. Um, apples, but it could potentially be grown on a large scale. There's um, in the past, uh, I've, I've seen a wood block print where um, there's this guy dancing through the field and he's sticking kale cuttings into the ground. And I, I think that in terms of in terms of having more continuous production, um, taking cuttings of, of perennial kale is actually more productive throughout the season than having to go all the way back down to seed level and start back up up from the seedling so um right now it's it's mostly most of the interest is just small people that have small holdings you know a small garden or you know a small market farm but i think in the future we'll, we'll see we'll see what happens so there are a couple of perennial kales or collards that are already pretty pretty available in the United States. We have the the purple tree collards, and then there's a there's a green tree collard as well. Why do we yeah. need, why do we need new varieties? Um, because anytime you have a perennial plant, um, that represents uh, a bobbleneck, and that represents it represents a snapshot in time. And if we keep that snapshot in time and try to grow it on forever, um, it may or may not work. And each variety, each variety, whether it's an apple or a perennial kale or a perennial onion or whatever, um, it evolved and grew up in a particular area, and it may or may not have the genetic plasticity to adapt into um, a new area. So having seed material is really important to continue the adaptation into new growing environments. And, you know, we see that um, that question be answered pretty well with true potato seed. And potatoes have, you know, recently been able to, uh, through seed selection, um, true seed selection, adapt into all sorts of new environments. And I'd like to see that happen with, with uh, perennial kale as well. Do you think uh, eventually this is a crop that will be grown widely in the in uh, in the US and in the temperate world or is this a uh, is this a crop that is going to have a fairly specific uh, climate that it is adapted to um, I've, I've already found through spreading the seed around um, through the experimental farm network um, project that I'm I started that I can talk about later but um, I've already seen it uh, doing quite well in a whole variety of environments from um, 
the mountains of Colorado to parts of southern Michigan um, to uh, a couple people in Florida. Um, and and I think that this, this crop has, this plant has enough, um, gen- this popula- plant population, I should say, has enough gen- genetic diversity that it can at the same time adapt into the cold temperate and be adapted into the warm tropics. And there's, there's a lot of um, carryover that can happen. Um, and when, when the plant, as a plant, is reselected to live in a place like Hawaii or Florida, and plants are reselected to live in a place like uh, central Michigan, um, there's actually, so the tropics, they can confer um, a lot of fungal resistances and, um, you know, heat tolerance, which confers some drought tolerance. Um, and the tropics, when you select for cold hardiness, you're also selecting for some drought drought hardiness and heat tolerance traits, interestingly enough. And it, as you know, that that's true with a lot of crops. Is, uh, it goes both ways. If you select for cold, you're also selecting for some... Um, tolerances to uh, conditions that be found in a hotter environment, vice versa. Right. Um, I did want to. St- I, w- I did want to touch on one other point. So some of the other brassicas that are available in the United States would be, like you said, the purple tree collards and that green collard, which it, um, it seems to be. It's descended from some thousand-headed types that were um, naturalized in some of the waterways in um, Northern California. Um, yeah, it really and, looks like thousand-headed. It really looks like thousand-headed kale when you when you grow them side by side. Yeah, it, it really does. And um, people don't know this, but when you start looking at the in the gene bank accessions, um, there's actually hundreds and hundreds of different types of thousand-headed uh, kale collards, basically. And uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty interesting that. This was so widely grown, um, Thousand Head was so widely grown, and now hardly anybody knows about it. But uh, brassicas actually are a very ideal forage crop for, um, for organisms in, um, uh, uh, by organisms, I mean like cows, goats, chickens in the middle of the winter, or at least in the period that we call the hunger gap period, which is the late winter, early spring, when there's hardly any kind of good forage available for humans or animals alike. Um, and then one of the other forms that's recently come on the market is uh, so-called cosmic kale, and mm-hmm. that was first released, I believe, by Loghouse Plants uh, down in southern Oregon, and now Territorial selling it. It's selection... As best as I can tell, it's just a reselection of Dobenton. Um, and I've caught word that there is Dobenton in the United States. So I do have a lead on it, and I hope that I'll be able to get a clone of this plant so I can basically take my population and backcross it to its two parents, the Dobenton and the purple tree collards, um, in the future. So we'll see. Cool. Do your perennial kales routinely survive winters where you're growing now? Yeah, I have almost 100% survival at this point. Um, even we've had, last winter wasn't as bad of a winter as what we've received 
um, two years ago. But two years ago, it was pretty hard winter. We had a couple uh, really hard sudden freezes and thaws, um, which, as you know, uh, freeze-thaw cycles are what really kill things. Um, and I lost, I would say, about 5% of my plants. Um, That's great. Some plants, yeah, another 5 or so, 10, I, I, I selected pretty heavy. Um, were ones that had a little bit of winter damage. Um, but when you lose a plant, basically its core will, um, if its core freezes in a certain way, the plant may survive long enough to flower, but won't um, survive perennially because it will, it will lost like its integrity and a fungus, a various type of fungus or slime mold will set in to the stalk and, and kill it. Um, but my, my goal is to continue to select for winter hardiness. And one of the things that I'm finding that improves winter hardiness is that I've used several other perennial brassicas that perennial brassica aricea that I've collected along the West Coast. Um, there was a single surviving clone of a perennial brassica that lived on the um, South Umpqua River. Um, and I, I managed to get uh, uh, plants of it for several years to cross in. Um, and Tim Peters is actually one that that kind of tipped me off to to this plant, and I actually found somebody else in the community that in that area in the Umpqua, uh, which is in Southern Oregon, um, or close to Southern Oregon. Um, somebody in the community actually had this plant, and they were like, "Yeah, I collected it down by the river like 20 years ago," and I was like, "Oh, that's cool." And over the years, I've I've found other perennial brassica. Um, one of my my mentors, Dr. Alan Copular, he had a, um, a thousand-headed descended population that um, seemed to like to um, sprout a lot from the base, and especially underneath the soil. And um, so I don't think it was emerging from the roots, but um, I used that in crosses. And then there's just several other plants that people gave me over the years that that were surviving and, you know, were quite perennial. Um, so I've also used those in the mix, but... Um, and some of those lines that I kept going, they actually are much more woody than the original population was, and yet they still have tender leaves. Um, so I'm basically trying to select for the stalks to be woodier and woodier and to basically create a sub-shrub. Um, and my goal is actually, and I, I think it can be achieved, is to create plants that are as tall as a human, so about seven foot tall, and actually act like a like a shrub, like a woody woody shrub that you know the leaves are not woody, but the stalks will be woody. Do you foresee being able to stabilize a perennial brassica uh, as a as a, as true breeding from seed, or is this always going to be a plant that is uh, propagated clonally? Um, I I think that I think a delicate bounce can be found where um, the plant will a plant propagate. Uh, plant population could be selected to have just enough flowering to to uh, continue adapting, but enough perenniality to be also um, selected colonially on, mm-hmm. onward forever. Um, it's kind of a delicate balance because I found um, certain lines are so seldom flowering that I've never 
I, I can't get any of them to flower, and yet they're, they're very perennial. Um, I haven't tried anything like using uh, coltracine on them to get them to flower or uh, gibberellic acid or, or something like that to see, see what happens. Um, but um, I don't know future things to try, really. Sure. And the other thing, too, with the, this uh, perennial kale that makes it a little bit harder to stabilize down a more narrow range of traits is that I'm pretty sure it's tetraploid, and at least a majority of the individuals in there are tetraploid, and that I have, still have some diploid individuals, because I am seeing um, some signs of a nuploidy or unstable genomes uh, happening in some of the crosses. And, <laughs> and I'm pretty sure that the diploids would resolve into the tetraploids fine, but the tetraploids resolving into the diploids are, are seem to have trouble. And the diploids don't... The, what, what plants I think are diploid are not as perennial as a, the plants I believe are tetraploid. But this is all conjecture, and I'd love to get a microscope and look at it under the microscope to actually prove or, or not what I'm saying. So another one of the classic trade-offs with perennials versus seed-propagated plants or clonally, clonally propagated plants versus seed-propagated plants is disease. Do you see problems with accumulation of viruses in, in perennial, perennial brassicas? Um, I don't know of any uh, viruses uh, that, are, that play a big impact in um, brassical or issue, to be honest. Um, a lot of what we're dealing with are, are fungal issues. You could potentially and get things like cauliflower mosaic virus and things like that. But I, I have to say, I've been growing, uh, you know, a number of perennial kales for years, and I haven't really, I haven't really noticed much. But the the number of plants that I grow is small, so I'm just curious if it, when you grow at scale, you start to see more problems like that. Uh, potentially, I've I've honestly never I've grown a lot of brassicas for market farming stuff like that, and um, if 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 uh, cauliflower mosaic has been around, I have I have not seen it. Um, I I mean it doesn't mean that it isn't a problem, but uh, that's part of the reason why I've tried to make sure to maintain plants that at least occasionally flower, so that people can continue to reflect or at least break out of any kind of disease issue that may be clonally propagated. Um, what, one of the issues, though, is with any brassica that we grow now is black lake. And like I said earlier, um, it, I, I put some of this material in a place that is infested with black lake just to see what would happen and just kind of as burner material. And it, it seemed to be much more resistant um, and so I think it's worth a study to see uh, what the true resistance uh, is of uh, this Brasco Aracea Ramosa descended material versus uh, normal Brasco Aracea biannuals and annuals. Yeah, definitely. How, how does that normally, is that, is that uh, a pathogen that spreads on the seed coat? Is that how it transmits by seed? Um, yes, uh, it, but very rarely. Mm -hmm. um, it's actually... Um, it, it's more going to be spreading in 
um, the litter that would be carried with seed. Right. Um, it, it lives on the residues of um, any residues left in the field, basically, that are brassicaceous. Um, there are it lots of wild wild related species to Brasco Aracea, Brasco Rap, or Brasco Nigra that we grow, or that that are weeds in the areas that we grow, or at least within a couple miles of where we grow, that um, have been tested and found to be to uh, have a presence of black leg and yet be asymptomatic. So um, it's still being worked out, um, kind of some of the life cycle issues um, surrounding black leg. Um, but it's definitely, black leg is definitely going to be a problem. Um, and in the 60s, people, 60s, 50s, people did, uh, black leg was a problem. And um, people selected brassicas that were black leg resistant. So we're going we're gonna to see that generally with, with uh, the brassicas that we grow, not just the perennial that I'm working on. But I'm trying to, um, try to already adapt to this growing problem. Um, there's several other diseases. There's this um, disease called white spot that uh, um, is more cosmetic, cosmetic uh, fungi. Um, but uh, yeah, any, any perennial, any perennial plant, whether it be an apple or um, a kale, is going to be um, going to be a magnet for, for things that can uh, infect it and survive on it and survive by propagation of it. Um, so, anyway, that's that's kind of why I've been continuing to focus on um, seed, making sure that, that it can reproduce by seed. We don't end up with another bottleneck. Cool. Now, speaking of seed, if people want to get involved in doing some selection of perennial kales, um, it looks like there are lots of places where people can get your seed and uh, and start working with it. Do you want to summarize some of that? If, if I want to get some of your seed, yeah. where would I go get it? Um, well, you would go to either the Experimental Farm Network seed store, mm-hmm. um, experimentalfarmnetwork.org backslash store, I believe it is. Um, and if you go to Experimental Farm Network, you can also find the project page and... Um, purchase some seed from the store and get involved with the project page. Um, there'll be, um, there'll continue to be discussions there, um, surrounding, uh, around what, what I'm looking for. And, um, I'll be able to set, send out clones, uh, superior plants, people to continue to cross with that sort of thing. Um, you can also get the seed through, uh, one green world, which is a mail order nursery. Um, onegreenworld.com and uh, that's currently where you can get it or you can just directly message me too and I can send you some seeds um, yeah I would also like to talk about some tree stuff too oh yeah I want to talk about lot, lots of other things but I definitely I want to get people the info about the, the kales before we move on we've got plenty of uh, material left to cover here I would also like to say that I'm not the only one that's working with perennial kale or perennial brassicolaria, and I'd like to mention that, um, and maybe we can, this can be like a, a little tab that we open up for, um, again, at a later point in the discussion, but um, 
I would like to say that um, there's been quite, this is a culmination of quite a collaboration. And, um, and this kind of harkens to like a philosophy that I have around plants and genetics and stewardship. And I would love to talk a little bit about some philosophy stuff. Um, and there's, there's one thing and it's like, why do we, why do we do what we do? And some people do what they do for money. Some people, they do what they do for fame. Some people do what they do for attracting the opposite sex. Some people do it just out of pure passion, um, inquiry. And um, I kind of, I, I see what I'm doing as as kind of like a child. I'm, I'm at a river right now, and I'm looking, I'm looking into this river, and, uh, you know, I can think of, I can see all the little critters running around in there and the fish and everything. And... Um, it, this this place kind of harkens back to my childhood, and and I feel that working with the kale is kind of like a childhood wonder kind of project. You know, I'm I'm stirring my stick in the mud and seeing what happens, um, and and I also see that that there are a lot of people that have come before me that have been uh, that stored this material up until this time period, and there are a lot of people that you know, contributed a lot of ideas um, of how I should proceed, you know, whether it be Graham or our friend Paulo Giardelli um, or Stephen Barstow or Frank Van Kierspilk or yourself um, or some of my local friends here. Um, and so I very much see that everything I do is a collaboration. And I'm, I'm just here for a moment in this time and space um, storing this material and um, I think that if, if I'm successful, um, then it, it gets passed on to somebody, you know. And I think that's that's the greatest form of success is that it's just, you know, I create, I, I help create something or I help short something, and 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 I find something of merit, something of value, and I offer to others as something that that I think has merit and value, and they decide if it has merit or value as well. And from a natural standpoint either survives or goes extinct, right? And so I kind of see that, that that's the kind of paradigm that I operate from with whatever I'm doing. And uh, there's been plenty of times through my uh, stretches of pretty extreme poverty where I've lost a bunch of stuff. Um, it's either like, you know, gr grow a little bit of food, get you know, buy a little bit of food, or, you know, keep working my job or... You know, and like, what what do I let survive? You know, what what can survive as I'm moving or whatever. And so I found that um, the things in which I've really made it a point to share out as far and wide as I could has survived more more often than the stuff that I've just been able to keep year in year out. And sometimes you know, freakish things happen, like gophers attack or deer come in and wipe something out or. Um, you know, it's a freak cold snap or whatever, you know, and we, it's, it's hard to just as an individual store things year to year in, year in, year out. And, um, you know, it takes a village to raise children. It takes a village to plant breed and to store plants. So that's, that's just a little philosophy of where, where I, I'm coming from. I could not agree more with all of that. <laughs> 
<laughs> I think that's a I think that's a pretty common outlook, particularly among the 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 freelance plant breeding community. But it's but you 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 definitely uh, you said that very well. I you know some of that definitely rings very true with me. Like uh, like it being a you know a a, chi- a childlike wonder project. I, I think that's that's true of basically everything I do. And, uh, yeah, one of the reasons why I, why I release everything open source is because, you know, none of this stuff really belongs to me. It's, I'm, I'm the current custodian, but soon enough I'll be gone and it, you know, they'll, they'll be hopefully in the hands of other people who will continue them on. Yeah. And I would like to say that the, the perennial kale is released as OSSI, uh, open source seed initiative. Um, and, uh, Everything that actually, I take a lot, I've been working on a lot of things for for years, and I just don't think that they're at a point. I mean, I, I guess others or might say like, oh yeah, they're at a point where you can release it, but I kind of like to hold on to things for a moment, <laughs> like you know, get them really fine tuned before I release it, and that's why it took took as long as I did with this perennial kale to release it, even though I thought it was too important to to keep to my to myself and a few collaborators anymore. Um, even though I'm not quite at a point I want it to be, um, I felt that I just need to get it out to the world and uh, help speed up the adaptation of this stuff. Um, and I'm pretty excited to see what happens um, in the next couple of years with the Experimental Farm Network um, project and a number of the other projects. Um, because uh, I'm going to be getting back a number of interesting clones this fall from people, um, and we'll be able to include it in the the kind of main gene pool. Um, and you know, each each place to grow something. It, I think part of the resilience too of this this uh, perennial kale is that um, it's descended from seed already that's been grown in like seven different places with seven different soils, and you know seven different distinct climates within the Pacific Northwest. So um, it's already picked up a lot of epigenetic inheritance. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think we, we often underestimate um, how much epigenetic inheritance plays on adaptation. Um, it's kind of evident in things like a buckwheat, for instance. You can, you can sow buckwheat, and within a few generations, buck, you could buy rando buckwheat from the store that was grown out some completely different climate than yours. And the first, the first couple of seasons, it will be, um, most, you know, most of the plants will set seed, but it will be really poor. But within a couple, couple generations, all of a sudden it will be doing great. And there's been papers that have been written about, about that. Um, corn, corn's the same kind of thing. Um, a lot of epigenetic inheritance in corn, um, kind of speaks to how it, is able to adapt so fast. Um, there's, uh, what's his name? Steven. He's a young, younger kid. Um, but he's working a lot with corn and he's taken corn from climates that like in South America, which, um, are completely different than anything in North America and grown them out in a greenhouse. The first generation, they were really long season and, um, you know, he's able to get set on most of the plants. And just by growing them out in a new, in a new daylight, day length area, 
they've adapted. They've adapted faster than than they could have just by adaptation, by genetic adaptation. Yeah, that's uh, that's Stephen Smith, who was now the curator of of the uh, of the William Moyes Weaver uh, collection, and he will be an upcoming yep. guest. Great. Yeah, yeah. epigenetics. There's a lot. I, I, it's one of those topics where it's so hard to, uh, it's so hard to measure, right? So I, I get, I get really <laughs> yeah. nervous about, uh, about epigenetics. Am I hallucinating epigenetics or is there something really happening here? It's hard to quantify. So I'm, it's for me, it's one of those subjects where I, I'm, I really, I'm paying a lot of attention to the research and I want to learn more, but I tend to. I tend to be skeptical when I when I see things that I'm that I'm not that that there's actual epigenetic uh, changes going on and not just uh, you know year to year changes in climate that I haven't paid close enough attention to. Right. Yeah. Right. But I think it's I think we're going to be surprised to find out really how much epigenetic change is going on and, and about how how durable it may be from one generation to the next. Right, and and I also think that. Um uh working with epigenetic adaptation um, is in my opinion um, much safer and more viable alternative to um, direct genetic genetic engineering mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know I enjoyed I enjoyed your uh, y- your discussion um, with uh, with Joseph about about GM and I, I take a little bit Doctor standpoint, just from the 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 sake of caution, you know, and um, you know, we don't quite know half time where we're going. Yeah, and, I, uh, I probably fall so, on the on the reckless side of the spectrum for sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I wouldn't say you fall on the reckless side of the spectrum. <laughs> That's a little harsh. Well, well co- compared compared to many, certainly in the you know in the in the freelance plant breeding world, I'm 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 pretty. I'm pretty unconcerned about uh, about genetic modification. Could turn out that I'm wrong about that. That would that would be bad. But uh, I won't be doing any of it anytime soon, anyway. So it's uh, it's not a big concern. Well, there's like you know the the CRISPR gene drive, and uh, you know there's just another another study that came out that that showed this was around um, working with uh, cancer, a trial with uh, cancer in humans. And they found that uh, it actually caused, even though they were targeting a modification, and it seems it seems like a quote unquote safer way to do things. Um, they found that it that there are all sorts of totally um, unrelated changes in completely different areas of the genome. And uh, um, I, from studies I've I've read, you know, the genome is palindromic. And um, the the math, I mean, it, it's in a three dimensional space, yes, but the math is is by the terms of um, the author of it was you know, Andres something or other from um, this the uh, what's it called the um, it's a book about adaptation, the way that adaptation and what he calls inevitability works. I'm trying to remember. what's the title. Um, I don't know. Hmm, this could be a less useful comment. I can't remember the title. We can always come back and add it into the description later. Sure, but uh, his uh, his point is basically that the this doesn't have anything to do with genetic modification other than it has to do more genomes, and that the math behind genomes are a way that 
th- that organisms innovate is actually um, uh, a, a dimension. It's a very. It's like hyper astronomical numbered dimensional mass, um, and it, it's the way that or- organisms walk around their their uh, genome and create innovation through small changes um, in their enzymes and proteins and whatnot. Uh, it's uh, I can't remember the book, the book title, but definitely reading the, that book definitely changed my my perspective on on the way that that life evolves. Sure, and, and it's there's definitely you know you, you can't there, there's no there's no change that you can make to a genome in isolation really for the most part if you're if you're if you're if you're changing the content you're changing the structure you're changing the order you're there and there are, there are knock on effects so my 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 confidence is mostly simply that maladaptive changes don't long survive in nature so we can yep we can screw things up pretty bad and and nature's going to take care of that for us now we may poison ourselves in the meantime and that that would be bad but but for the most part <laughs> na- nature's going to be okay cuz it's just going to wipe out everything that we uh, that cr- that we create that does not uh, achieve, you know, optimum efficiency for that organism. Absolutely, and that's one of the center points of uh, uh, this book, The Arrival of the Fittest, is that uh, he he argues that, uh, you know, nature's very cutthroat, that if something is not uh, a suitable, if it's not real innovation, it's wiped out in the first generation and if it's something that works within the um, metabolism of the organism, it doesn't even get out of the gate. So, um, but I, I think that a lot of a lot of what we can we can make a lot of um, progress just by working with species complexes. Um, we can do, make a lot of progress by genome analysis. So figuring out what gene sequences are related to what traits growing out a ton of individuals and gene sequencing is getting cheaper and cheaper. So we can just run through a million organisms and find the 250 that meet that criteria, grow those up, cross them, and voila. Um, I think there's a lot of promise in, in that, that approach. And that, that's something that I'm, I'm interested in because I'm doing work with um, uh, nut, a lot of nut trees this, these days. And... Um, there are projects that a lot of people are not approaching, um, or certainly haven't approached um, in our, you know, modern fleeting society. Um, people want quick, quick return. You know, what, what, what do I do? You know, how can I, how can I learn jujitsu in 25 minutes? Or, <laughs> you know, um, I want to learn C plus plus in an afternoon or whatever. You know, you see those kind of self out books. You know, how do you fix your marriage in a week or whatever? And um, there, there are a lot of projects that are kind of hard projects that um, are going to take generations, and one of them is uh, nut breeding. Um, and um, <laughs> to kind of be a little contrary to what I just said, um, I want to be as efficient as possible in breeding nuts, and one of the ways that I think I can do that is by learning more about the virgin field of, of, you know, genome profiling and figuring out what traits link to, you know, uh, non-convoluted nut cavities, um, what traits 
linked to early fruiting, what traits linked to drought resistance, what traits linked to anthracnose resistance, which is anthracnose is a big problem with any tree crop in the Pacific Northwest. So um, I think that uh, if the universities could, could study that more, because I don't have, or if I can get funding somehow to study to study that, I think I can make a, a lifetime's worth of progress in my, my lifetime with nut trees. Yeah, with I mean that's the thing, man. The 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 longer the time to maturity with a plant, the more valuable that upfront information is because you're waiting a long time with each generation to be able to really evaluate tree tree fruits and nuts. That's that's uh that's a real exercise in patience. Uh yeah, so so there's a lot of so one thing I wanted to talk about with the perennial kale and then kind of saying into like trees, mm-hmm. if that's all right. Yeah. Is um that when you get into perennial plants, um, their perennial plants will have um, a juvenile stage and a flowering fruiting stage. And um, some things can readily switch between the two. Some things don't really have that. It's once, once they get enough infrastructure to create that they feel that they can create flowers and fruits, they'll do it. Um, other things have to have a trigger. Um, some things are hardwired um, biological clock. At nine years, they start fruiting. Um, and with nuts, uh, like, say, walnuts and hickory, um, chestnuts, um, and those are all closely related, too, so they're sharing a lot of the same genetic material. Um, the understanding of, of how things switch from juvenile stage to fruiting stage isn't well known. So uh, there is some patents that uh, patents been in my existence, but um, or at least biological patents. But um, there there is some patented information about um, how trees can be switched from a juvenile state into a fruiting state, and I'd like to know more about how to do that. Um, I realize that it could probably kill a tree, but if you grafted a tree elsewhere and you can get the nuts from individuals and you don't care about them dying in the fifth year or whatever, then that'd be great, you know, to still get that seed material and do the next generation. And using the genome, genome profiling, you could take the ideal individuals and make a co- grafted copy of them before you do that. Um, but anyway, that's something that I'm also interested in exploring. Um, with this nut tree project. Um, so basically, uh, why, why am I interested in nuts and fruit trees? Um, one, of, one of the things that when I, when I first got into farming in a real serious way in my 20s, um, I, I love black walnuts. I love the flavor of them. And I thought, man, it'd be really great to, to grow black walnuts. And it was like, well... You know, there's two schools of thought. Well, one was like, that'll take too long to grow up black walnuts. I was just looking to grow some to eat, you know. Mm-hmm. It's going to take you 20 years, you know. <laughs> and then the other school of thought was the best time to plant a tree was, you know, a generation ago. And uh, so, you know, I, I just went I went on. I went for the, the things that were easier to do, um, like, you know, save seed on yellow mustard, save seed on and breed calendula. Um, you know, work, work on different types of 
Napus, Brasca Napus kales, um, work on carrot selection. Um, so I, d- I did those kind of things, you know, I didn't, but now, now that I've become a little bit older, you know, I'm like, well, you know, I only have so much time on this planet. I ought to begin working with nut trees. And one of the, the one of the other reasons why I'm really into trees is that, you know, we look around the world and, uh, if we took, took, took a real good look at things and honest look at things, the world's not in good shape. You know, pe- people are not in good shape. People are sick. Now, you know, a good portion of the world is malnutrition. Um, you know, soils are degrading. Um, you know, many have said that the, the basis of civilization is, uh, the soil that we keep or erode. And so, um, trees, trees normalize the climate. They, they normalize the, the moisture in the landscape. They, they provide refugia for all sorts of organisms. They're a long-term food source. Um, they're beautiful. They fix out carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. Um, they are the most efficient thing at creating soils, um, long-term. And so it just, it just seems that, that, you know, if I want to create, if I, if I'm seeking to create the biggest impact in my life, my short little life, then I should work with trees. And so... I want to create the biggest impact I can in my short little life, so I'm going to work with trees. So I'm going to continue working with trees, and that's kind of my my uh, logical progression of thought behind why why I want to work with trees. And then also um, in my 20s, one of the reasons why I I came more and more interested in farming was that um, I was sick, I was unhealthy, and um, I didn't know why. Um, I had all sorts of digestive issues. I'd eat something and I'd get a stomach ache. Um, I would have malaise and aches and uh, arthritic type conditions. And I didn't figure out until I was 28 when I saw my friend who is a MDND, a medical doctor, a naturopathic doctor, who um, my friend Fernando um, started this independent healing arts center in Seattle which is a doctor's office for people that are both doing allopathic medicine or treating symptoms and people that are doing holistic medicine that are treating the root cause. Um, And his one goal with this organization was that um, it could be the most mundane thing or the most woo-woo thing, but if if we'll start a program and we'll see if it if it has efficacy. If it has efficacy, we'll include it. We'll include you in our practice. If if it doesn't, then we won't include you. So they have all sorts of um, they include all sorts of techniques. So they'll include like Chinese medicine with medicine with like modern oncology stuff. So they'd be treating cancer with Chinese medicine and chemotherapy at the same time um, with good results. And so um, I went to go see him because I thought he. he if, if anybody can help me figure out why I'm sick, he's going to help me figure it out. And he quickly came to the conclusion, well, you're allergic to something. And uh, it's either your external environment, your uh, the house that you live in, the, the materials it's made of, um, you know, the industrial, our industrial society, the things you're being exposed to, or something interior, the, your interior environment, you know, what you're eating. And um, he said, well, what we can change first, easiest, is not the carpet in your house, but what you're eating. So let's try that. 
So I went through a three-month-long elimination diet and a remineralization of my body, and uh, I didn't put one thing back in there, and that was wheat. And I flash forward, I come to find out that I basically had the symptoms of glyphosate poisoning. In the 80s, they started finishing wheat with glyphosate to, to get it to evenly ripen down, uh, or evenly dry down. They'll, they'll spray a wheat field with that poison, and then there's basically a mega dose that goes into the food food supply, and then through our the industrial process that we create whole white or we create white flour, um, we're basically atomizing the the gluten, and so it's creating a, a perfect scenario to create reactivity to gluten or the other things that are the primary foods in our diet. So um, when I found that, that was quite a boon towards um, becoming healthy again, and it was around that time that I tried chestnuts before, but it was around that time that I realized that I need alternative starch sources. So I started working with potatoes, and I started becoming interesting, interested in chestnuts. And I'd always thought I'd eat, I, I'd have access to a couple pounds of chestnuts a year, and I always thought, man, if I had 100 pounds of that, I'd be a happy camper. And so that's kind of why I began to uh, go scouting around, finding any chestnut tree I could, and begun down the path of, of working with chestnuts. And that uh, that's something that uh, that I've benefited from, and others as well. I I know I've ordered a couple of packages of chestnuts that you've collected, and uh, and uh, I think you've made those available to a lot of people, right? Yeah, uh, I was able, um, and I've stayed in touch with a number of those people, and some people have put out um, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of trees. Um, there's uh, groups of trees that have gone out all over the place. Um, Florida, California, Arizona, um, basically anywhere that I could I could ship chestnuts legally, I did. So I, I shipped them to many of the states in this country. Um and so some of the people, like I said, kept kept in contact with me, and it's interesting. It's it's interesting to see, uh, it will be interesting to see what what they make of it. Um, I really tried to offer um, custom packages for, for people that were living in colder environments or warmer environments. And uh, so I, because we live in a chest, Washington, Oregon, we're in a chestnut quarantine area. So I won't ever be able to receive that material back unless if you're in Oregon or Washington. Um, it's still it's still cool to know that that a lot a lot of really nice genetic material went out all over the place just to create more chestnut trees. And how are your trees doing? They're good. I don't have that many, but uh, uh, I've had some problems with uh, with the plants drowning. Um, in our winters here with, uh, you know, more than a hundred inches of rain, uh, a lot of the seedlings yeah. seem to bounce back from that pretty poorly, but I think I have 16 that, uh, that are, uh, that are going now that, uh, are just about ready to transplant into the ground. I, I, I've had similar problems to you and I've, I've owned my own ground, but I don't have that much of it. So my, you know, my primary growing area is only about an acre. You can't grow a lot of trees on an acre, but uh, a few years no, a few no. years ago we bought another eight acres uh, very nearby, and so that is now my my 
tree breeding area, but there's a lot of work to get all that uh, to get all that land under control before I can get most of it planted. And you were doing some significant clearing too, weren't you? All of it, all of it. It's uh, I I I I I didn't want to clear all of it because it was all in uh, in fir and cedar, um, but uh, it's it was such a it was such a gnarly job that the only way I could uh, I could get it done at a reasonable price was to uh, was to have it all cleared and stumped. So now I have a I have pretty much a blank slate with uh, a whole bunch of really huge slash piles on it, and uh, it's just a matter now of getting the uh, of really getting the, the the surface tamed. You know, it's been rolled over by a lot of really heavy equipment. It's hard to uh, even with a small tractor, it's hard to get that uh, under control. It's a big job. I bet you're gonna you're gonna make you're making another comment. Let's put some more context around uh, around the chestnut project. So so chestnuts were for a period in time a, a fairly important staple crop in many places, and now it's pretty common that, that that people have never tasted a chestnut or seen a chestnut. What what happened? Uh, well, there's, there's several things that happened. Uh, so, just to first to give you a little, give you guys a little historical context. Um, chestnuts are still consumed by um, a large portion of, of the world, and um, chestnuts are native to um, Europe, Asia, um, more temperate or subtropical areas of, of Asia, um, and North America. Um, and in North America, our, we had a very large forestry, um, two of them actually get wiped out in a very short period, the, um, the elm and the chestnut, and, and it basically changed the nature and the character of the forest after the beginning of the 1900s. Um, in, in around 1909, um, somebody imported furniture from China that was made of Chinese chestnut, and there were fruiting bodies of chestnut flight on that furniture. And the spores quickly spread, and they spread so fast through the, the populations of chestnut along the eastern seaboard that um, it wiped out all the chestnuts by the 1950s. And they were a reliable year-in-year-out source of food for wildlife, uh, native first peoples, and settlers alike. And all of a sudden, these trees got wiped, and it completely changed, as I said, the nature and the character of the forest, and, and also people's, the people's like yearly forage cycle. Um, and so... Other chestnuts in the world have um, evolved with this blight and um, have adapted and have more or less have immunity um, or have good resistance. And so people came back in after that blight and they replanted chestnuts, but for whatever reason, um, you know, we saw that song chestnuts roasting on the open fire, but for whatever reason it never came back into mass culture until recently. Um, so I, I, I'd love to change that because um, they're the perfect food source, uh, carbohydrate food source 
uh, for anybody that lives in the temperate environment, they're, um, they've got a good you know, acid profile. They've got relatively low protein, but they do have good mineral content. Um, their, their sugars, uh, a large portion of their sugars are not directly processable by the body, but they're healthy for um, the flora and fauna that exists in our gut, so they're kind of a, a macrobiotic food. Um, and they also have, in Chinese medicine, they actually warm up your body. So they help with, uh, cutting mucus out and whatnot. And so they're really, um, nice to have, um, you know, during, during flu season, if you just don't get the flu, if you eat chestnuts, um, it, 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 you won't get cold. If you cook some chestnuts in the morning and then you're working outside, you've got these warm chestnuts in your pocket so you can keep kind of eating them as you work. And the warm chestnuts are obviously warming your body, but they also increase circulation in the, um, in your extremities. So they make you less susceptible to frostbite to a certain extent, of course. <laughs> um, so yes, yeah, and they're durable, durable food plant. As long as you have good drainage, um, you can grow chestnuts. They, they grow in places that are, you know, they like acidic soils. They like low calcium soils, which is a lot of what we have in Pacific Northwest are, you know, acidic, low calcium soils. So why isn't the chestnut blight a problem for us in the Pacific Northwest? Um, well, chestnuts, American chestnuts never grew here, one. And there was a brief period where when people did plant chestnuts, most people um, planted American chestnuts, I should say, in the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm. Um, and a few of those got wiped out um I think in the 1920s, 1930s, but um, the blight was never common here. Um, and since people have never grown a lot of chestnuts here, we also don't have the chestnut weevil, and we don't currently have the chestnut gall wasp. So we're basically free of all the pests, so it's easy to grow chestnuts here. What is your breeding going to focus on with chestnuts then? Um, well... Some of the things that I'm interested in are um, flavor. I've always, everything that I breed, um, you know, I, I want to be able to consume it and enjoy consuming it. Um, I don't like to, I have, a, I have a hard time working on things that are unpalatable, even if I can see a goal off in the future. Sure. But I really like to work with things right from the get-go that are very palatable. And chestnuts generally are very palatable. Um, so one of my goals is to increase their culinary aspects. And one of them, one of the things that you really look for, especially when you're using, um, American chestnuts or, uh, excuse me, or European chestnuts or European descended chestnuts is that, um, inside the, the, the shell is actually a thin papery shell and inside there's like a tissue paper type wrapping that's around the the nut meat and the nut meat is more is not it, it barely has any oil so it's more like eating a potato um and this wrapper around it's called the pellicle and the pellicle has some uh tannins and there goes a duck a very fast duck down the <laughs> river <laughs> i i don't know if anybody can hear that but that duck is excited uh so the pellicle has a stringency um so you want to be able to, when you roast or boil your chestnut, 
you want that the pellicle can um, be easily removed from the nut. And um, not all varieties can do that. And some varieties, the, the, the shell doesn't crack out very well. And from it, it basically the nut and the pellicle, the, the nut meat and the pellicle adhere to the shell. So you want to select away from that. Um, so that's for starters. And then I, I want to, I want to continue breeding stuff, even though I don't have any problem with blight. Um, I'd like to work with material that is already blight resistant and then send it to people in places that have blight issues and make sure that yes, it is blight resistant. Um, I'm also interested in trees that are um, either going to be tall timber trees that can be, you can, you know, harvest nuts for a number of years and then, you know, 60 years down the line, 80 years down the line, cut them for timber. But on the other side of the equation, I'd like to continue working with trees that are very dwarf, plants out a lot, you know, they grow to about 15 feet tall. Um, the other thing that I'm interested in is precocity. So, um, obviously, production is is always concerned with any any food plant. And then, um, you it's it's also good to have um, trees which the cupule, or it's also called properly the burr, um, which surrounds the nuts and it has these spines on them. Um, I would prefer varieties which. Um, when they ripen, they hold the nuts well till they're ripened, so jays and squirrels can't get in. But once they ripen, they actually open up their burr and drop the nuts on the ground, free and clear of the burr, which makes it easier for picking. That would definitely be a handy trait. And and there are plenty of trees that already do that. So, um, and what's interesting about Cassinia is that all of the species of Cassinia freely interbreed without any special anything. You just plant them in the same area and they started interbreeding. So um, there's, and there's a lot of genetic diversity within each of the species and between the species. And so you can create all sorts of new, new interesting trait pairings by crossing different species. So lots of potential, lots of diversity, and uh, sounds like a lot more people in the Pacific Northwest particularly should be growing chestnuts. Yeah, and they're there actually is, there have been a lot of people in the past that have grown chestnuts. And there, what I found is there's actually a great diversity of species and hybrids between different species in the Pacific Northwest, including a few pure American trees. And so um, I've been the last 10 years going around Washington, Oregon, scouting, looking for chestnuts, um, evaluating the tree, how healthy they are, the quality of the nut, the precocity, the um, attributes of the seedlings. And so I've been slowly amassing um, knowledge about where all these chestnuts are. And last season, well, last winter, I actually went around for the first time ever and collected scion from, say, the top 5% of these trees. I know a couple hundred where a couple hundred trees are. And so I've gone to all the ones I could get to, took cyan from those, and grafted those up into a master orchard um, of these trees that at least have some superior traits to kind of bring them all together. Awesome. So you have the, you have the Pacific Northwest chestnut gene bank now. 
Maybe, yeah. <laughs> One of them. <laughs> Trying to. Um, and as as I've worked on this project, um, it's pretty amazing how many more trees have come out of the woodwork. So um, it's kind of reached a, a new level. Um, you know, I thought I knew about so many different trees, but after talking with more and more people, there's like, I have a... a uh, legal pad and it's it's two there's there's it's two pages long of new places I haven't even looked at so there there's so much more to look at too so if people are listening to this and they know of chestnut plantings do you want them to get in touch with you and tell them tell you where they are absolutely right. absolutely and I can share sign or seed with with you and you know it's all it's all collaboration basically so what other trees are you working with well um so I'm working with a lot of different trees. Um, I'm working with forage crop trees, other nut trees, uh, various fruit fruit trees. So a quick overview of the juggling species. I'm, I'm working with um, black walnuts, English walnuts, also called Carpathian walnuts. Um, and I'm working with uh, butternuts and heartnuts, and the hybrid between heartnuts and butternuts called wartnuts. And other complex hybrids between those, heartnuts and butternuts, easily hybridized. Um, some oddball stuff like uh, what are called black warts, which are black walnuts crossed to warts. Um, and uh, I'm I'm working with chestnuts, and we have a, a relative of chestnut out here called um, Chrysophylla chrysolepsis, which is the golden chinkapin which kind of tastes like a macadamia nut. Um, I began to scout for those trees in the wild and collect a little bit of material. Um, I'm also interested in oaks, like um, the white oak, bur oak hybrids. Um, I'm interested in um, fruits like persimmons, pawpaws, um, mountain papayas, which are the vasconcellias. Um they're much more hardy than, than regular papayas. Um, I'm interested in jujube, um, the faola, which is the hardy pineapple guava, um, I'm, and a number of other fruits, apple, apples, pears, peaches, plums, apricots, almonds, um, that sort of thing. You're going to need a lot of land. That's, a, that's the idea, but for, now, but for now I can graft and spread the stuff around. So that's your solution to the to the land problem is uh, is is network and uh, and share materials. That's part yeah that's part of the solution. Um, and but but I am um, I actually have have a friend who is an investor and, and believes in what I'm doing, and he, he started investing in me. And uh, I am looking to purchase land in somewhere in the Lant Valley. So hopefully. Um, hopefully I'll be able to fix that, that land problem thing. Awesome. But I, I am pretty inspired by um, this guy named John Hershey, who was kind of a forgotten uh, forgotten innovator. Um, but uh, he, his name should be remembered and revered. Um, he was an early advocate for um, the, the restoration and the preservation of our soils. Um, he was... Uh, he started this nursery called Number America's Number One Nut Tree Nursery, and it wasn't nut. It wasn't number one as in like the best. It was like 
there isn't anything else like it. So this is the this is the first one, and so um, he he was poor his whole life. He was a Quaker. Um, he took a vow of poverty and never owned land. Um, but he he was also he also he also made bridges. And so he bridged between the, the Quakers and the Episcopalians and the Methodists and the Protestants and the Baptists. And um, they, people in those congregations and people in the Quaker congregation would basically offer him up places to plant trees. And so he planted hundreds of acres of, of American food trees, like the honey locust. Um, which is a ma- an amazing forage crop for for pigs and chickens and cows um, and goats and whatnot. Um, he planted up American persimmons and pawpaws, chestnuts, and hybrids between them, and um, walnuts and hickory of all different types. Um, and so I think again, there's a lot of value in collaboration over competition. Yeah, I can I can imagine that uh, there would be quite a lot of demand for for people who want to work with you on these projects too. I mean, you have access to materials that uh, that, that very few people could obtain at any price. So, if they want to uh, if they want to be able to grow some of those plants, maybe you can uh, maybe you can work with them to get a little space. I I would love to. I I always like to work with people. Um... It's very much the Tom Wagner problem as well, right? It's uh, there's a story you hear <laughs> yeah, over Tom. and over again. Where do you where do you put all this great stuff that you've got when you don't have your own land? It's a tough one. Yeah, it it really is. I, I think it speaks to one of the central problems of our time, which is that uh, so much uh, so much land is being mismanaged and being destroyed. You know. There are a lot of a lot of people like us which um, would would jump at the the chance to to plant a piece of land that they knew were going to be in you know in perpetuity. And there's there's also kind of an impermanence in our society. Like we're talking about kind of the temperance of our society, how temperate te- uh, temporary things are. Um, but there's really things are not. Uh, we don't have any kind of like intergener. We don't have very much intergenerational um, continuity happening currently in our society, and that's something that we should uh, um, ask: why? Why don't we have that? Yeah. And uh, I think that leads to a lot of problems, like for instance, uh, you know, looking at people as economic units, throwing away our elders when they they can no longer economically produce, um, and it's a, it's great it's great moral dilemma over time yeah for sure you don't i mean that's that's the uh you know you don't see a lot of uh a lot of people picking up uh farming when uh when their parents pass on those farms get consolidated and they get owned by bigger and bigger corporations or just bigger farmers who have you know better equipment and uh, eventually it's you know there's just going to be w- one one farm to rule them all and uh <laughs> they, they produce all <laughs> and the food. everywhere like mordor right yeah. exactly and everybody after my precious yeah yeah it's it doesn't seem like a it, it doesn't seem like a situation that's going to have a good outcome no nope. no nope, it doesn't 
you know, you know, you you have made some good progress in Yapa Root that I've been been enjoying following, and that's something that I'm kind of in a pre-breeding stage with. Um, Everybody's kind of in, a identifying... <laughs> in a pre-breeding stage. No, but I mean, you, you've been able to you've been able to generate some seed, which is cool. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it is it is a, a crop to to be worked on for sure. Um, but I'm currently kind of in the stage of just scouting wild populations and, you know, kind of, um, you can't, I can't do it all. So it's kind of one of these things that as, as I find worthwhile seed, I'll, I'll feed you worthwhile seed because you're working on it, you know? And that's, that's something that I've, I've learned to do more and more over the years is, uh, just give, give the material to the person that, that has, uh, rammed the ball the farthest, you know? Well, that, and, uh, that, that helps they, you to ensure that you can get material back in the future as well. Um, well, I mean, is, I don't know if it's a total insurance because oftentimes they're like, oh, didn't germinate or, like, you know, squirrel came in and ate it all sure, or sure, whatever, sure. you know? <laughs> <laughs> sure, but uh, with a lot of these, yeah, it's 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 so hard to get started. It's, you know, that there you have so many failures early on that uh, if you can find somebody who has gotten at least past that stage, it's more likely that they'll be able to multiply up the material. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, what, another thing that I'm working on is persimmon. And um, yeah, I, I think of, uh, in terms of um, sustainability of, of diet, I try to find and grow plants that, that come to maturity can be stored or harvested at, at many as many different times of the year as possible. So I look at a whole, uh, like all season holistic diet. Um, and persimmon is one of these plants that fits in with that because it's a lot of persimmons are ripe pretty much at the end of of um, apple and pear pear season. Most fruits are are done. And when you come in, I, I like to find the fruits like persimmons um, and medlar and a few others um, that are harvested after frost. And you can basically take and store until Christmas or a little bit past Christmas and have food, um, you know, kind of through, through that, at least through that period. Um, there are a lot of apples that actually can store till May. Not a lot, but there are a few. Um, so some of those are interesting. And there are a few pears that can be stored well into the spring as well. Um, but persimmons, persimmons have um, a lot of nutritional value. They're underlooked in this society. Um, I think they taste great. For people that don't like mushy or um, people that, that want crispy fruit, um, or are put off by jelly. They don't like jam or jelly, which is strange, but there are people that don't, and they, they're not going to like persimmons, but most people that have persimmons are like, man, it's delicious. Why, why wasn't I eating this before? And there's two main species of persimmon that, that we work with. Um, well, three, actually. There's the lotus persimmon, which is the least useful of the three, um, but it can be quite productive, and it's a small. It's also sometimes called the date plum, and it's about the size of a um, of a quarter to half dollar, and orange and bright orange in the interior, dark orange in the interior. 
Then there's the Asian persimmons, who of, of all the persimmons, Asian persimmons had the most breeding work done for the longest period of time, thousands of years. Um, so they tend to be quite easy to grow and work with if you're in the right climate. Um, Asian persimmons uh, tend to have fruits that are, you know, three, four, five uh, inch, even five inches across. Um, they're uh, lighter orange in the interior. Um, they're either astringent or non-astringent. Um, some are some are always astringent even after frost. Some aren't. Some are never astringent at ripening. Some are astringent when they get pollinated. And <laughs> there there are other forms. So there's there's different forms of them. And then there's um, American persimmons. And American persimmons actually have had the least breeding work of any of the, the diospirus species, um, any of the persimmon species. And, um, and yet they actually have, um, some of the best mineral content, the richest flavor, potential for the richest flavor. Um, they have the highest carotenoids of any of, uh, of any of the persimmons and you can actually hybridize, you can hybridize, and uh, so that's the whole next level. It's hybridizing the Americans with the Asian Asians. So there's Diospyrus americana from America and uh, Diospyrus khaki from Asia. And there are a couple other species like the princess persimmon, which is like off the chains in terms of carotenoids. Um, that's Diospyrus rhombifolia that's barely been used at all. Um, and there's some uh, interesting thoughts around um, higher ploidy levels, and we're talking like known aploid, so um, nine, uh, nine, nine uh, chromosomes, and uh, dodecaploid, so 12 pairs of chromosomes, um, and using, so using some of the triploid uh, selections that are the hybrids, um, like Nikita's gift um, is is an example of a hybrid persimmon between American and Asian, and that's triploid. So it's almost dead end. Um, it can it can be crossed, but it doesn't give you 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 get seed very rarely, um, even with pollination. Um, so you can actually get better seed take by taking that and crossing that in with a known aploid uh, Asian persimmon. Um, and so, anyway, there's there's a whole world to explore, and that's about all I know about the ploidy levels of of that because it just really hasn't been explored yet. But that's something I'd like to to go down the road and figure out what can be had from that approach. So, what do you think the benefits are of crossing between American and Asian persimmons? Uh, new novel flavors. Um, you can get a lot of the, the domestic-type traits that, that have been bred into khaki into a fruit that tastes more like an American. Uh, we might have a lot of noise. There's, like, huge entourage of ducks coming, like a lot of them. <laughs> okay. We'll just work with it. Yeah. Any, anyway, so, yeah, you can kind of, kind of can, you can combine both of the best traits of, of the species together. Um, there's some... In, in the crosses that I've had so far, um, there's some richness that I haven't found in either of them. Um, and it may convert, confer other disease resistances. And 
conversely, you can also you can either take it towards a more American form or a more Asian form. And there are some hybrids that are mostly Asian but with a little bit of American genetics that allow you to extend um, American persimmons into like a zone six um, or colder. Or, uh, excuse me, Asian persimmons. You can extend Asian persimmons into a colder environment, like a zone six or colder. What's normally the coldest for an Asian? Mm, Zone seven, kind of pushing it. It won't, they won't, uh, also in the hybrids, you can get some um, earlier fruit set or earlier ripening as well, um, which is kind of an issue. Like if you were to try to grow persimmon, um, you probably wouldn't have... Um, enough heat, heat units, you'd probably want to try Diospirus lotus, for instance, if if you lived in a, a place similar to Bill, um, or a lot of places in Western Washington. Like the Seattle area, you can get away with growing some of the earlier Diospirus khaki, the Asian persimmons. Um, but, yeah, anyway, so persimmon is one thing I'm interested in. Um, apple diversity is another thing. Um one of the reasons why I came down to Oregon was to meet um, and befriend a man by the name of Nick Botner. And Nick Botner has the largest apple collection in the world um, of about 4,500 apples, different varieties. And um, I've been now going down there for three or is it four years and been going through the whole collection up to seven different ripening windows looking at the ultra-early ripening apples, like the apples that are ripe now or have already passed, and the apples that, that are really late or um, apples, so like apples that ripen in late October, mid-November, apples that hang on the tree and hold on the tree even after frost, apples that store, that if you pick them before frost and you store them while ripe, they'll stay ripe and fresh into March, for instance, or, or longer, um, apples that, that has uh, deep, you know, deep orange. There are a number, of, there are a few apples that are actually deep orange inside. Um, there are a number of apples that have red flesh or streaks of red flesh or interesting star, pla- red star patterns inside if you cut them, uh, you cut them on a cross section. Um, so um, there's just such apple diversity and like so many things um, in the marketplace, we only have but a handful of varieties. And they tend to be the crappy varieties, the varieties that ship the best or whatever. It's, it's amazing to think of 4,500 apple varieties all in one place. That's, uh, that's an incredible piece of work, and it's great that you're helping to try to preserve some of that. Yeah, and most of it's actually been... Uh, been copied um, now by uh, my friends Sean Shepard and Joni Cooper of the Temperate Orchard Conservancy. And uh, Joni lives in Malala, Oregon, which is a little south of Portland. And they've been able to propagate most of the varieties of apples um, into a, a nonprofit collection um, that will continue to do research and preserve the varieties. But uh, Part of what I've been doing is kind of independently um, evaluating them um, and propagating them myself. Um, and with with my one of my friend one of my friends and cohorts, my friend Nick Rutledge, um, has been instrumental 
in this project and been at it longer than I have. Um, but there's, there's just, there's just so much diversity. And part of it is even though it has been re- replicated at the Kemper Orchard Conservancy, um, it hasn't been that well studied. Uh, Nick Bodner himself is, he's an amazing man and has an interesting story. Um, and he's done so much in his life. Uh, but he's not, he's not an academic and he has, he's just looked at it from the standpoint of having a really large collection of apples because he loves apples, but he's not really studying, studying them, you know, in terms of like a concerted way. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, that's kind of where I've tried to step in and begin to figure out what, what are the apples that have the best anthracnose resistance, which is a growing problem and actually could be, uh, something that is, um, completely fatal to growing orchards in the future in the Pacific Northwest and elsewhere. Um, we're looking at, uh, scab resistance on apples, clothing moth resistance on apples, um, and identifying year in, year out, which ones year in, year out have these different resistances. You know, one year it can appear to be scab resistant and the next year it, you know, has scab. So, you know, we're trying to find those apples that each year have, you know, are holding up each year. And the conditions, growing conditions are different every year. So we're trying to look for the apples that consistently produce every year. Um, As well as that, you know, the oddball apple that, you know, is just totally genetic, you know, looks totally distinct, you know, or is genetically distinct or the apple that, you know, oh, it barely produces and it's biannual bearer, but wow, it's a good apple. So kind of doing a mix of those. And um, I know you, you've been, we've worked together. I sent you a chunk of apple seed um, from some of my favorite varieties. And uh, how, are, how are those doing? Well, I, I do have quite a lot of apple seedlings from those seeds. I think I've still got north of 80, but uh, Good. We, we have fire blight here. And uh, yep. fire blight did a lot of damage my seedlings. I think at one point from your seeds, I had almost 400 um, seedling trees, and uh, the vast majority of those got, got nuked by fire blight. So the good news is I've probably got about 80 trees that have some level of um, resistance now, and so those will become um, kind of the foundation uh, that I'll, I'll plant over at our, our new property and uh, mm-hmm. continue breeding from. So. Uh, so that's great. You know, it's always it's always really depressing to grow a whole lot of seedlings and uh, and see most of them die. But on the other side, uh, you know, it's 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 really positive to have some that 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 do survive an event like that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's again, it's like an echo of what happens in nature. And uh, just like uh, my dissemination of plants, you know, if uh, sometimes it successfully gets, I'm I successfully been able to get it out to a bunch of people. I find the time to be able to do that. Or I get it out to a bunch of people, but yet nobody has success growing it because it's, it's weird or whatever, you know. Or sometimes everybody has success growing it. Um, but fire blight is another thing, along with anthracnose, that it's going to be more and it's going to become more and more difficult to grow um, all sorts of fruit trees in the rose family. Um, as, as our climate warms, and um, warm, wet periods cause fire blight. And um, it's a bacteria. It's a very 
uh, infectious bacteria. Um, and the control, there aren't many controls for it other than giving your trees antibiotics, which obviously causes a whole another slew of problems. Um, when you add, when you just kind of generically add antibiotics to the environment. <laughs> yeah, not not a not a plant breeding solution, as far as I'm concerned. You know, I'd I'd rather a no, plant yeah. die than give it antibiotics. <laughs> yeah, I mean, people don't think of getting streptomycin to trees, but that's what orchards do to prevent uh, fire blight. Right. Um, so fungicides don't work on fire blight because it's a bacterium. That's kind of one of the take home points. Um, but so Erwinia. So Erwinia or fire blight is a big problem, and it's getting to the point where uh, pear orcharding in places uh, like Kentucky is becoming extremely difficult, and people are losing old, old varieties fast. Um, and it's spread into Europe, and it's um, in certain places of Europe it's becoming a big problem. So fire blight resistance, the selection of fire blight resistant cultivars um, is uh, something that's a paramount importance well i might have some <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll see in a few years how it goes it's that it's that and drowning if i can uh if i can keep them from dying from fire blight or from drowning we're, we're good we've, we've got we've got coastal adapted apples at that point so let's see so you got fire and you've got water you got <laughs> flooding and do you have locusts uh no but we do have deer which are close they're basically furry locusts yeah yeah. So you have biblical problems. <laughs> well, that's that's uh, that's the farming side of things. It's uh, you, you can't avoid those kinds of problems. And plant breeding, of course, is really at the core about killing plants. And uh, it turns out I'm very good at that. So it's uh, you know I, I spend more time really killing things and growing them. I think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, me too. All, all of us really, I think, can relate to that. And, you know, it, it is letting go of the B and C grade things. Yeah, absolutely. B and C grade, it doesn't, doesn't make the cut. And, you know, I, I know people that bless them, but they, they're like, no, no, save the C grade. It'll, 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 you know, like, no, let it go. No, I won't give you the C grade. And then they're looking at me like, you know, I'm an evil, bad, bad man, you know? Like, no, take the A grade. Try the A grade. Yeah. It all depends on how much diversity you have to work with, of course. You know, for some things, I just try to keep everything alive, and some of it's a real pain in the ass to keep on life support just so I can get at its genes in the future. But if you've got, you know, if you've got a source like 4,500 apple varieties, you don't need to keep anything that's uh, that's uh, that, that, that doesn't have good characteristics for your climate. That is a good point. Yeah, if, if you're running into... Uh an issue where all your A grade is really C grade. You yeah. gotta try to keep everything alive. Yeah, you know that's like that's 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 what the that's what a lot of the Andean crops are like. Since we simply just can't get more material to work with, a lot of the varieties are poor, but you keep them going just so you can hopefully get more seed out of them in the future. Yeah, and hats to you for keeping them going and uh, being able to to cross them and, and breaking open the 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 key, you know, the door. The key to figure out how to get the seed from all that. It's been that's been an important development. Um, so another thing I'm I'm really into is pears, and uh, it's another thing that uh, my friend Nick Rutledge got me involved in. Um, but for a few years now, I've been going out to the USDA uh, germplasm repository in Corvallis, 
and evaluating a number of their crops um, on, a, on a personal basis, but also getting, getting my, my data back to my friends that work at the USDA um, so hopefully they can utilize it in some way. And also, as, I, as I'm coming in contact with uh, different varieties of pear and hawthorn and stuff like that, and also donate and mint. I donated a mint recently and some vaccinium hybrid. Um, but anyway, that's getting in the weeds. But um, So I'm trying to also get back and get things in the repository for somebody else to use. Um, but the USDA in Corvallis, they have the largest collection of pears in the world. And they have something like... Um, 2,200 accessions. Wow. Uh, about 1,400, 1,200 of those are cultivars, and then the rest are wild accessions. And I will tell you what, there are some um, that taste beyond awful. Um, like, you cannot <laughs> get the taste out of your mouth, um, So especially some of the wild accessions. There's just one called Pyrus uh, salicifolia, or has leaves like a willow. Uh and it is, it is terrible, but they're actually a lot of really good pears. So I've been going there similarly, um, looking at up to seven ripening windows, looking at the entire collection, eating pears until, um, until like I, I have to get back to the bathroom basically because it's just so much, you know, but, um, and there are so many different there's such diversity in pears, more diversity in pears than there are apples. Um, so many different forms, so many different species, so many different hybrids. Um, it's been a real joy to find, say, like the top 5 or 10% that uh, appear to be above the rest. And um, I've been trying to graph those two and share those um, into our, our network and get get more pear diversity out there. Um, speaking of fire blight, uh, the curator there, Joseph Postman, he's a, he's a great man. And he, he was actually talking about a project of um, working with some people to uh, evaluate their their fire blight, or supposedly fire blight resistant cultivars in places like Kentucky to figure out um, you know which ones actually are going to hold up. And then he also has a project, too, where he's been collecting pear seeds and um, distributing pear seeds um, to select for different, uh, different traits. Um, there are like three, there are three red flesh pears in the collection. Um, one is Root Creek Fraw, uh, the Sweden, and then there's uh, um, Joey's Red Flesh, which is a hybrid between Asian and American or Asian and European pear, and then um, uh, what's the other one? Bloodburn. <laughs> and uh, all three are just like apples. Um, the red flesh in apple tends to add some astringency. Pears very much so. So reselecting red flesh pears is going to be uh, an interesting endeavor. Um, but there, there. I mean, there, there are ton, there are pears that taste like loquats. They have like tropical flavors. Um, you know, there's pears to select for natural dwarf uh, characteristics, where they only grow a couple feet tall. Um, and pears come much more true to type. Um, you're, if you grow a pear from seed, you're much more likely to get a useful pear than than an apple. Interesting. And so that's actually something. Yeah, that's something that um, 
you know, is it makes it worthwhile for a backyard grower to grow a few pear seeds actually and find a new cultivar. So pears must have gone through a more profound early bottleneck than apples. That's one theory, but there's actually there there's so many different species involved. Um, I think it's more. And and when when I look at the pear collection, there's there's still so much diversity amongst those species that it's good. So I th- I think it's just that the um, it may have gone through natural selection before hominids got involved that that selected it for mm-hmm. better characteristics, or it's just it's you know it's its wild form is more palatable, basically for whatever reason than apples wild form cool yeah i know nothing about pear breeding i i had no idea there were any red flesh pears out there so that's that's new yeah there, there's also um so pears are closely related to sorbus and um they're closely related to quince um cydonia uh pseudocydonia um the japanese flowering quince kinopoly use um trees like uh davidia the little ornamental caria or rock rose, um, and they're all in the Pyrene complex. Um, and so um, Hawthorns, Crotagus is another one in there. Um, and another number of those genera can actually cross. And so Pyrus is closely related to Sorbus, and some of the Sorbus can cross Pyrus. And there's a particular plant called Sorbus aria, or the white bean that can cross with a pair and has further species overlap. And it creates triploids, um, and possibly sometimes tetraploids, um, that's called X sorbopyrus. And sorbopyrus is, um, there, there's a plant most commonly, the most commonly known sorbopyrus is called Shapova, but there's others called Basu, which is from Basu, Hungary, um, Smokvarka, uh, Balbiformis, um, the Bullweiler pear from England, uh, 1400s. Um, and Joseph is actually even able to create a seedling of the Bullweiler pear, um, which is actually fruiting for the first time ever this year, um, which it's going to be pretty cool to see what, what it looks like. But they tend to, these sort of priorities tend to create um, these small little um, light yellow uh pyroform, basically pyroform, bell-shaped fruits. Um, and they have such a wonderful texture and flavor, such a delicate flavor. So that's another avenue for breeding, are breeding these um, sorbopyrus. Um, both Maturin, Ivan Maturin, and Nikolai Bavlov worked with uh, crossing sorbopyrus, or creating sorbopyrus. So there's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of interesting avenues approached there too. Um, there's some pairs from Asia that appear to me appear that they might have, um, uh, in them. And they tend to have these like crazy tropical fruit flavors that you would never ever imagine. Um, I don't know if in, anybody, I'm sure some of these others had a loquat, but they kind of taste like a loquat, <laughs> but just these like, or citrus at least, um, they have like you know lime notes or or um, tangerine type notes in a pair, you know. So there's a whole avenue of working with some of the complex hybrids too that um, 
are are the, these pairs. This one, it's called uh, one of them is called Ta Xian Sui Li. Um, but there's there's like twelve of these like tropical flavored pears, um, and then there's um, pears that are that are hybrids between um, our European pear, which is Pyrus communis, and the Asian uh, one of the main Asian pears called Pyrus pyrifolia. Mm-hmm. And um, when those are crossed, they usually give you um, a really tart phenotype. But um, cross has been made over the years to to kind of have like less of a kind of tart citrus flavor in those crosses. And there, there's a really good one that that's called Missouri Number no. 83, which actually is highly fire blight resistant. So if you're dealing with fire blight, Missouri Number no. 83 is definitely one to to try. Cool. And yet we go to the grocery store and they just have pears. All this all this yeah. incredible diversity. And uh yeah, not that many people really uh really have access to it. That's amazing. And what's interesting though is that the the pears that we have in the grocery store are actually very they're 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 there for a reason. They're actually they stand up even amongst the great diversity. So you've got your Danju, Bartlett, and Comis, which are the three most common pears. And all of those, of course, grown on a home or um, ecological farm scale are uh, beyond delicious. Um, they, they really, they still stand out as one of, as some of the best, which is unlike apples. So, you know, Red Delicious doesn't stand out as all, at all. Golden Delicious is pretty good if, if you grow it on a home scale. Um, you know, there's jazz that's hard to get, uh, Siana, but it grows, you know, it grows well in an organic setting. Um, so anyway, that's, um, that's actually really fascinating because I can't, I can think of very few crops where the varieties that you're most likely to come across are, are really superior in terms of flavor. Most of them are superior in terms of the ability to sit on a shelf. So that's yeah, uh, like the red red Lasota potato. <laughs> sure, <laughs> or just about any, just honestly, just about any potato at the grocery store. I, I, I guess I guess Yukon Gold is all right, but man, most of them are not. It's, it's not all that right. Great. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you posted the progeny tree recently of it, and the only thing interesting in there is is the Freya. But um, in, in my book, that's actually a good transition. We're we're uh, we're we're getting we're over two hours now. And this uh, this thing probably can't go on forever. But there there was definitely one more thing that I wanted to get you to talk about a little bit, and that is your you've done some work in the past um, with uh, with the uh, potatoes that are not native to, but have been but but have uh, a longer historical association with the uh, with the West and the and the Pacific Northwest. Could you uh, yeah. could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, so, yeah, it's, I, so I've known Tom for a while now, and Tom was, I was breeding all sorts of different types of plants, and Tom was like, why don't you breed something which can actually, you can actually survive on? And I was like, well, one day, Tom. And then he was like, can you help me dig up uh, all these tubers? And I was like, sure, I'll help you. And then he's like, well, do you want to take some home? And I'm like, sure. And so I did, and that pretty much started the potato thing. 
Um, but part of my role uh, with any with anything is is uh, I, I see is uh, to be a plant preservationist to try to find and acquire some of the material that's dying out that has been um, that has a long known history, um, and so um, I've been interested in uh, in some of these potatoes which came up from the Spanish potato traders up in the Pacific Northwest as well as breeding all sorts of other types of potatoes. But um, over the years, uh, inf- information's come up about these these people that came into the Pacific Northwest um, that were trading all sorts of things. And in the manifest, um, in their hall, they had um, several varieties of potatoes. And, and I read, at the time I read, and I was like, the only one that could have been identified at that point what, that, that I knew about was Ozette. And I was like, oh, that's cool that at least one of them exists. But as years passed by, I realized that actually these potatoes were still present. And they had gained different stories, but they were still, people were still keeping all of the potatoes that were on the manifest. So it turns out that uh, they mentioned... They, they mentioned the Ozette, but they also mentioned a red potato, which is still around called the Bodega Red, that was um, named after Bodega Bay in San Francisco area. Um, and then they mentioned a purple fingerling, which is, which is um, very likely Elmer's Blue or um, this other purple fingerling called Toliac, which is fairly, very likely uh, the same as Aha and Weary. Um, and then they mentioned this potato, um, I forget what, what they call it in the manifest, but we know it as Johnny Gunter. And um, it turns out that uh, Johnny Gunter is closely related to, and you wouldn't think it, but you know, you start breeding potatoes, you realize how much, uh, how much a, a simple self kicks up the genes again and provides for um, a really diverse, uh, you know, a really diverse uh, degree of, of phenotypic, or it creates a lot of phenotypic diversity is mm-hmm. what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And, um, so Johnny Gunter is closely related to Elmer's Blue, at least by the, um, that, that Zhang 2011 potato study where they looked, they went around and they collected all, all the macaw ozette that they could. They collected um, the clinket potato and the Haida potato, and they realized my my interpretation is that they're seedlings of Ozet, and um, that uh, Ozet is close to the divergence of antigenum and tuberosum potatoes, um, and that they likely came from two distinct. They didn't test Bodega Red, unfortunately, though, and that wasn't included in the study. Um, so we don't know how that fits in, but it's probably Bodega Red. So that is probably was the potato probably used by Burbank to create his red potatoes, which creates the foundation for the red and white flesh potatoes that we see today. So that and and we know that the red and white flesh potatoes that we see today are different genetically than other potatoes that we have commercially on the market. And they're descended at least part from antigenum potatoes, so it kind of makes sense that that, that bodega red is possibly an antigenum. Um, but um, 
what what really surprised me was this Johnny Gunter potato, which is such a versatile potato that everybody should be growing. Um, it's very productive, good disease resistant, has naturalized in a number of places. Uh, they do Wamish people, which one of the uh, first peoples of the Seattle area. Um, they, I'm pretty by descriptions that I historical accounts, they were likely growing that potato. Um, so it has it has a lot of history in the area. Cool, and you and you've again done your part to distribute that around and get it in the hands of lots of different people. Yeah, and they've created some seedlings over the years, as have you. Um, and I've noticed that uh, that that colored flesh one that you created is pretty interesting. Um, but the Johnny Gunter. Uh, I have this one called uh, Tapered Yellow that I'm growing some TPS out of this year, and it's um, it has been a very it was I gave it to Nathan Pierce, and he also found it to be very fertile. Um, so it's it's inter- yeah it's just interesting that you know you take take something that that is kind of shy to go to seed, and you take it out one generation, and all of a sudden it becomes you know super fertile again yeah well sometimes it's sometimes it's burdened with disease and sometimes it's just uh you just you just mix those genes up and it comes back to life um but i've also done i've also done a lot of other crosses one of one of my interesting crosses been this potato called uh, i call tricks tracks was purple or that's what tom tom named it but it's a it's been a very productive purple i don't know did i ever give it to you I know Nathan had it for a while. I don't. I I don't actually bring that many potatoes in because I'm so paranoid about disease. But uh, I've seen pictures of it. I think probably on the Kenosha Potato Project. Yeah, and that that one that one's been pretty exciting in terms of its productivity and its fertility, um, and it's set berries in in conditions where nothing else set set at all. Down here in the Lambert Valley, it's a lot harder to get berries to set. Um, and then there's this other selection that um, I made of something Tom gave me one time. It was a Negro Isol across the Irish Tom. And I took that out another season and reselected it for scab resistance. And that's been that's been another another one of my favorites. Um, but I've also had a lot of fun selecting red flesh. Uh, different red flesh cultivars and and whatnot. Cool. So this would probably be a good place for us for us to wrap. I think we could easily talk for a couple more hours, but uh, that's probably an indication <laughs> that we should just do this again sometime in the near future. Um, Sounds good. But so, how do people get in touch with you if they want to learn more about any of these projects? If they want to get materials from you? If they just want to? Uh, bend your ear and ask you questions. What? Uh, how, how do people get in touch? Probably the best way is on Facebook. Just uh, look up my name, Chris Manix, H-O-M-A-N-I-C-S, and uh, you'll you'll find me. You'll find me there. Um, if you're into, into potatoes, you'll find me at Commercial Potato Project. If you're into chestnuts, you'll find me into All About Chestnuts. If you're into persimmons, there's like Persimmon World. There's all these different forms, but that um, they can also contact me via email at uh, trickstracks at comcast.net. That's T-R-I-X-T-R-A-X at comcast.net. And 
that's a good way to get a hold of me as well. I'll put up links along with the uh, with the podcast when it goes up. So, all right, cool. Chris Omanix, this was fantastic. Thanks very much for coming on. I hope we can do it again soon, and uh, that's a wrap. All right, sounds great. Thanks, Bill. That's it for this episode. I have another one to catch up on with uh, Telsing Andrews of Astrolane Edibles. I hope that I'm going to get that done very shortly here, maybe by the end of this uh, coming weekend, so just a couple days from when this podcast is posted. And after that, I'll hopefully be moving on to uh, new material uh, in the near future. So thanks, everybody.